Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992, knee-deep here in water, fly fishing with Tom Skerritt in 2023. I am your host, Phyllis Govan, with me today, back again, thank God she's here, writer-director Jessica Ellis, to talk with me about A River Runs Through It, uh, a movie that I've never seen, nor I believe you had seen, no. Uh, but like also a movie that I was sort of like felt like I had seen. You thought you actually saw, thought it was Legends of the Fall, if I'm not mistaken. It's so. fun, yeah, I thought it was Legends of the Fall. And I mentioned to my writing partner that I was watching it. And he was like, I thought that was Prince of Tides. So, <laughs> Which, I mean, that does have a water theme to yeah. it. So I guess there's something to be said to that. Yeah, this was a movie that like I. So I'm curious where you land on Robert Redford as a director, because I feel like that's a thing unto itself yeah you know what i'm yeah. saying like it, it's 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 really interesting because i feel like and for our listeners i'm just going to walk you through his his directing credits uh notoriously first thing he ever directs is ordinary people he wins best director wins best picture it is this sort of widely acclaimed beloved kind of i don't know rich white people problems type yeah. movie um that that really struck a chord in the 80s or 1980 that is um and he never really recaptures the same level of esteem as a director as he did kind of right at the gate i think quiz shows a straight-up masterpiece but i do feel like that movie kind of weirdly doesn't exist yeah I, you know quiz show is is tough for me i really wanted to love that movie i loved everything in it and I, I had the same some of the similar problems that i have with this which is i think pacing is not his strong suit and it's very very slow 
He's so yeah. So uh, he does ordinary people in 1980. He does uh, the uh, Malagro Beanfield War. I love that movie. Up. That is my favorite Redford se- movie. I've never seen that film. Oh, but you've got to see it. I should watch it. Uh, then he does this in 92. He does Quiz Show in 94. Horse Whisperer in 98. Uh, which was a hit. Yep. Um, he whispered to horses with Kristen uh, Scott Tom- Thomas and uh, and a very young Scarlett Johansson, and uh, then he does Legend of Bagger Vance, a movie that everyone loves. No, it's again super boring movie. Yeah. Um, then he does Lions for Lambs, which straight up doesn't exist, which is a movie that stars him, Meryl Streep, and Tom Cruise, and it doesn't exist. I don't think I've ever like, even heard of it. I don't know how that's crazy, possible. Right? It came out in '07 uh cruz is sort of a, a supporting role as this kind of like right-wingy senator it was sort of like an oscar Beatty type thing sure. but like it just made literally no impact because in 07 you had like there will be blood and no country for old men right and michael clayton and like these movies just blew everything out of the water uh he has a film called the conspirator which came out in 2010 which i don't know what that is and then a movie called the company you keep in 2012 which i have a vague recollection of existing but all of this is to say that Robert Redford as director is sort of um, he was kind of the first, I don't want to say the first guy to think, because I mean, I guess that's really Orson Welles, but like an actor that gets best director, that gets best picture, that kind of everybody sort of gives the flowers to and kind of paves the way for your your uh, Kevin Costner's and sure. Mel Gibson's for what that's worth. Thanks a lot, um, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Bobby. Um, so yeah, I, I, the reason I bring this up is you mentioned it sort of very astutely. He does have a vision and a style. Yes. But it's kind of snoozy. Very. This <laughs> this was I, I I'm not gonna denigrate the movie too much because I think sure. it has a beautiful theme. But this was probably the most boring movie I've ever watched in my entire life. It is. And like, you know, it was made in the 90s. And you and I talked about this on text in a little bit. It was when dads were king and white dads were king. And like, it just, I just watching it now in 23, I was like, did these people ever encounter a real problem in their entire lives? Like, it is the most minimal white guy shit it's just unbelievable while saying that it's beautiful and there's very profound moments in it but like oh my god is this a slow slow movie especially if you do not care about fishing in any any way shape or form which i i do not which is fair i i mean so norman mclean the the wrote this semi-autobiographical story collection essentially and it was largely kind of um rejected by most publishers uh apparently including one that rejected it on the basis that it contained quote-unquote too many trees which is amazing (laughs) which i mean respect um it was eventually published uh by the university of chicago press in 76 and it went on to sell like a staggering amount of copies like it was a very successful collection um redford chased him for years uh this this feels like the type of (laughs) white people shit that existed man white man shit let's be specific sure sure yes uh where you had sort of your your late 70s early 80s um it was a different world back then right and a story like this I can understand hitting a vein in a way that it just 
quite simply would not do today. Yeah. And I, right. And I think that as I'm watching this and it should also be said, Redford narrates the film. Boy, does he in every scene. Well, I mean, he doesn't narrate that much, but he narrates a handful of this film. And the narration is directly pulled from this uh, from this story. Yeah. There is something kind of comforting and and warm about Redford's narration. And in the sense that, like, there's this kind of harmony that exists between my notions of Robert Redford as a human, of which I have very little, truly. Like, I... From what I've read about him, he seems like a good guy for the most part. Sure. Um, you know, obviously you have the Sundance Film Festival, which ultimately will sort of probably be one of his biggest legacies yeah. when everything is said and done. Um, I respect his politics. I respect his artistic expression and the support of young artists and artists in general and, and independent cinema, all that kind of stuff. So there's kind of this almost kind of dad, grandfather energy that he has in my brain already. Mm -hmm. And then with that narration sort of kind of hugs the whole film in a way. But all of this is to say to underline what you're saying, hard to really lock into this movie, like hard to really care about these movies. Well, I think he made kind of a classic adaptation mistake, which was that he was so in love with the written version of this story that he forgot to make it into a movie. Like a lot of the narration in it, it's like, boy, it would be interesting to see that dramatized, like on the screen that we're watching, as opposed to being just told it. And, And it so much of the movie is like, I guess there could be conflict here, but there's really not and you know he he brings in all of these beautiful prose words and stuff and it it is it you know it reminds me there was a similar thing done in um in Seabiscuit which actually I think did it more successfully because it was the narration was used as a way to establish the time and the era and this film sort of starts that way with talking about Montana at this time and the, the town that the boys grew up in but then it just becomes an a monologue in most many of the scenes about what the character is thinking or what is going on and it's like this is a visual medium i should be seeing that that should be visual (laughs) i i absolutely agree with you i i think that it's (laughs) yeah it's clear he loves this story very much and he has projected a lot of stuff onto this story yes um but to sort of piggyback on what you're saying my biggest issue with this movie is that fundamentally i don't know what makes norman and paul tick not at all like i don't know what actually drives them as humans um what what they what they desire i know that norm likes jesse great sure for some reason correct Uh, i mean she seems to be kind of as close to a like whippersnapper as you can be in this universe but yes i agree with you whatever um paul is kind of a big question mark and my the impression that i'm getting is that i don't know that norman really knew his brother all that well right i think that he's a bit of a mystery to him to begin with i don't think the story really illuminates a ton a ton about him and so what we're kind of given is this cipher um in the form of a very cute brad pitt i mean hard not to think he's charismatic very charismatic yeah 
but he's also very green at this point too. Like you know, he, though, I prefer him like this because he feels really? like he was trying. He feels like he was trying. I feel like since about 1998, Brad Pitt has been being Brad Pitt in every movie that he's in, and he's never really done a character. In this, I feel like mm. I actually see him acting, which with him is nice because I feel like he's not just showing up and being Brad Pitt on screen. He's trying to inhabit a character. And I find that much more admirable, you know, and, and of a pursuit for an actor. We're going to put a pin in that. All right. We'll come we'll back unpack to that. Brad Pitt. We'll come all back right. to that. But to, to this sort of this notion of these two main characters, first of all, I mean, Craig Sheffer. Sure. I mean, like, it's, it's, you can't hang a movie on this guy. And I I don't mean that. I know that sounds shitty, but it's just really tough when A, I don't really know much about this character. And B, he's just not giving me what I need in terms of just, you know. Yeah. I don't want to blame the actor too much for this, though, because I feel like it's the writing and the directing here because it's like, you can have. You know, it seems like what the story, if you wanted to make the story really dramatic, it would be about yeah. a prodigal son narrative between the stiff older brother who tries to do everything right and doesn't get the appreciation he wants and the fuck up younger brother who everybody loves, right? Like there's, and when you write a stiff character and you cast kind of a blank actor, you lose the pathos and the and the struggle of that stiff character of being, feeling jealous and feeling you know, overlooked and angry and self-loathing and all of that. It He just was what was on the box. He was just stiff older brother who's doing a good job. And we never got into the interesting stuff about being in that position that I think would have made the movie much more relatable. I thoroughly agree. I, I, I also do wonder, um, and this is something that I kind of am surprised that never that this never came up before in the five years of our 99 podcast or quite frankly in any of the episodes that we've done in terms of um strict religious the trope of strict religious parents um i think that 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 permeates a lot of films sure that that tends to be sort of a a hallmark of uh either a character embracing said ideology or bucking said ideology and becoming you know whatever the case might be um I find it incredibly trite and always very boring to watch because I find it very irrational. Um, it it's it's it 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 always feels very binary to me the way that it's written. You know, the 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 strict religious parents yeah. always feel so. Um, you know, I I don't even really know what the right word is, but just sort of they they just they don't feel realistic to me. They and now again, I was not raised in a religious household. Um, I imagine that if Emily was on this episode with us, she would have thoughts on it to some degree. I asked her yesterday when I saw her what her thoughts were on this film, and ultimately she was like, "I saw it a really long time ago. Uh, I remember seeing it." Um, you know, Emily was raised in a in a very sort of strict religious household. And I, I think that to some degree that probably resonated with her. But for the most part, she was just sort of like, I remember remember not really liking it very much and just kind of moving on with my life. Which is why I sort of feel like this film has sort of two big kind of signposts, problems for, for me, and I imagine for you as well, which is... Uh, I don't really care about religious fundamentalism to sure. some degree. Like I, I don't, I don't 
live my life in a religious way. Um, there are all sorts of stories that take place in that universe that can be interesting that I have seen. This just doesn't happen to be one of them. I also could not give a shit about fly fishing. So what you're left with really <laughs> is not a lot to work with. Um, let me give a little bit of context just for our listeners who haven't perhaps haven't seen this film. The McLean brothers, Paul played by Brad Pitt and Norman played by Greg Sheffer, uh, live a relatively idyllic life in rural Montana, spending much of their time fly fishing. The sons of a minister played by Tom Skerritt, the boys eventually part company when Norman moves east to attend college, leaving his rebellious brother to find trouble back home. When Norman finally returns, the siblings resume their fishing outings and assess both where they've been and where they're going. Does that not sound really exciting, that's guys? A, that's a hell of a plot right there. Uh, River runs through it open on October 9th, uh, 1992, against Under Siege, The Last of the Mohicans, Sneakers, and The Mighty Ducks. Sneakers, obviously, uh, a film that was it's, starring Robert Yeah, Redford. it's funny. And he opened against himself. He kind of opened against himself. Uh, that, uh, uh, and, and a superior film. It would go on to yes. make $66 million. It's pretty healthy on a $12 million budget. Uh, it has 80% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 83 from audiences. It won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, and it was nominated for Best Musical, Original Score, and Adapted Screenplay, if you can believe that. Um, Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half out of four stars and said, fly fishing stands for life in this movie. If you can learn to do it correctly, to read the river and the fish and yourself, and to do what needs to be done without one wasted motion, you will have attained some of the grace and economy needed to live a good life. If you can do it and understand that the river, the fish, and the whole world are God's gifts to use wisely, you will have gone the rest of your day. Redford and his writer, Richard Friedenberg, exactly, <laughs> exactly, Jessica's face is perfect, uh, understand that most of the events in any life are accidental or arbitrary, especially the crucial ones, and we can exercise little conscious control over our destinies. Instead, they understand that the Reverend McLean's lessons were about how to behave not, uh, no matter what life brings, about how to wade into the unpredictable stream and deal with whatever happens with grace, courage, and honesty. It's the film's best achievement that it communicates that message with such feeling. I mean, sure, that all sounds nice. I don't, I don't I mean, think I don't... that happened in the movie that we <laughs> yeah. watched. But I, but again, I feel like this is another white dad projecting his yeah. his thoughts onto a kind of a blank page. Like, that sounds like a very interesting movie. I wish that had been the movie. It's. I mean, it is interesting because I do feel like there is a... Um, there is a grace to the the pastor father's character um yeah. right he he doesn't seem stern to be a dick as it has been sort of portrayed in movies like i don't know footloose for instance sure um you know where you've sort of got this like dad that's hitting you on the hand with a ruler all the time it doesn't feel that way and i do think tom scarrett is very good in the film i always um, love him just always yeah, he, he has such a very quiet presence uh, he's i just find him enjoyable on screen whenever yeah. he shows up totally agree and he's good in this and you can he's he has notoriously said this is the fa his favorite film that he's ever made and this man made alien so you know take that for what and it's contact worth. yeah and contact and yeah and any and top gun um so you know he's he clearly cares very much about he's bringing that heart and that sort of um beauty if you will to the role um I just don't know that there's a, a lot of there there. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that, like, again, it's like the religious, as you're talking about it, the religious aspect could have been a really interesting part of this film because, you know, there is the question in in dealing with, you know, people that have addiction struggles, which is really what this movie is about. Like, why does religion fail to address that too? But that never gets brought up. The religion, it's interesting you were talking about this as a religious film. And I was, my father is a Catholic deacon, um, but a very liberal Catholic deacon. And so I was raised in a very unusual religious household. And like the religion in this film seems incidental. It seems much more about who Tom Skerritt is as a person. Like he didn't have to be a preacher. He could have just been a nice, a dad who believed in unconditional love, but was kind of stern. And the I don't find that the pressure of the religious aspect added much to the story didn't seem to add much pressure to what the boys were going through there's i think the the very best thing in this film is the way they show jesse's family dealing with her alcoholic brother um and it's this situation they're a much more liberal family they're all drinking they're all very boisterous compared to the mclean family but they also have this big thing they don't talk about outright, which is that they have this family member who's a, a really messed up alcoholic and, and having real problems. And it's clearly this huge trauma they're trying to compensate. And then you have the McLean family that is very puritanistic and, and, and you know, plain and modest. There's even a line in there about like, oh, he's Presbyterian. I think like that. That's why he doesn't like our family or whatever but they are dealing with it in the same way, which is by not talking about it. Like that contrast between the two alcoholic brothers is kind of where this movie almost feels like the great Gatsby or something else of that period where mm -hmm. it's like, we're talking about issues by not talking about issues. And again, like the religion could have factored into that really well, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not there in the movie. It's it, at some point, there is so much subtext that the story just falls asleep. And I think that's kind of where this ended up. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish I could say that there was even a lot of subtext. I'm not, I mean, I, I, I don't even, I, I absolutely agree with you that there's an interesting sort of juxtaposition going on between these two families. Um, but, but I also feel like they kind of dropped the ball in the Neil stuff, which is Jesse's alcoholic brother. Yeah. Because you don't, <laughs> there's like this fixture of Norman and Paul seem not just plain and boring, but also kind of like, I don't, dumb's the wrong word, but just like not astute to things yeah. in the world around them. So because they don't kind of outright say that Neil is an alcoholic until after this kind of weird situation where she tries to force Norman and Paul to take Neil fly fishing with them in the hopes of maybe they're sort of something will rub off on Neil from from Paul and Norman in terms of like, you know, goodness and whatever um there's kind of this whole debacle where he brings a prostitute and gets drunk and it's the only time that the film has any sort of like i don't want to say life but like something's happening yeah so there's there's something. a story occurring yeah and you know jesse would yells at norman and says like how could you have left him alone and i'm right. just like he's a grown man like what do you mean left him alone like i don't see how that's even See, I found thing? that interesting. I I okay. I I found that line. I, I don't think she was right to have that reaction at him because how the right. hell was he supposed to know? But like yeah. in the terms of like when you are a family that has a traumatic secret that you're hiding, yeah. you forget that everybody else isn't 
isn't part of the conspiracy to hide right. this. So it's easy right. to feel betrayed when someone is not in sure. on the game. You know, I thought that was actually kind of interesting, but it's a ridiculous yeah. reaction because he doesn't know he's an alcoholic. But the real failure with this that is thing, thing is like, Paul has no moment of introspection seeing how messed up Neil is. It it doesn't also occur true. to him it's at true. all. Like he thinks it's funny. Right. It's played off as a funny incident. And it's like, you're missing your own pitches. I don't understand. It's, no, I, I, that's, it's weird because like there, there's this sort of the, the, the Norman and Paul are the audience for lack of a better way of putting it. Right. I mean, they're the, they're the main characters or the audience. And I feel like because they're so kind of uh, unaware to some degree, I feel the same way. Yeah. Right. So in that argument, Norman doesn't really understand what the hell's going on. And then it isn't until later where, again, it's, it should be said, at no point is it explicitly said that Norman is an alcoholic. You mean Paul? Sorry, Neil. Neil, yes, Paul Neil. Also, Neil yes, and Paul, Neil. yes. Yes. So it's never explicitly said that Neil, Jesse never says Neil has an addiction problem. No. Neil is an alcoholic. Instead, she says, why is it that the people that need your help the most are unwilling to take it or something to that effect, right? And if I'm Norman, I have to read between the lines here and try to figure out what exactly Neil's problem is. But fundamentally, Norman and Paul don't like Neil. They don't like Neil because yeah. he's kind of a prick and he's he hits a dog at one point. I'm like, that's a line too far as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Um, he just seems like a smug asshole quite frankly yeah um and these two you know middle of the road white bread guys of course look at this guy and they're just like no thank you so we kind of have a similar perspective of neil and this continued sort of read between the lines subtextual what have you doesn't work for a movie that's this kind of vague on top of everything else yeah yeah no i i i agree with you there's just there's such a lack of specificity of any, like even the fact that like, okay, Paul is a newspaper man and he's supposedly doing these controversial stories. We don't know about what, we don't know if that's why he gets killed. We don't know. Like we don't, it's, it, it's so funny. There was a movie that came out recently that I I will not smear because I feel bad doing it where everything revolved around the, the character's jobs. But you never actually find out what they just have business job. You never find out really what their job is or what specifically like Uh the point of it is or why they care so much. So it was like, why am I buying into this? And this was the same thing. It's like, that could be an interesting story is if, 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 you know, uh, Paul was really pushing the boundaries on, Mm -hmm. on journalism in this town and it was upsetting people, but it's like, but he's not, he's not, it has no consequence. You know, as as you were speaking, I'm starting to wonder about what the development process was like for this film. Yeah, and I say I say in the sense of um, clearly Norman was still alive when this film was being made. He appears at the end of the film. Um, oh, is that really clear- him? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, it is very personal. Um, my assumption is that. Uh, Redford took it very seriously mm-hmm. but you also have to wonder whether or not there were things they weren't allowed to talk about things that they couldn't dig deep into 
you know, uh, embellishments or things that might have made the film perhaps more filmic were resisted by Norman. There's, I, I don't want to, I don't want to assume anything, but it does feel to me like there's a strictness to the material that perhaps was like handcuffs and really kind of gave them very little latitude. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about the film and Brad Pitt said at some point that like he he doesn't love the film because he thinks he could have done a better job, but he was very young and he doesn't think Redford pushed him far enough. And he said like it was complicated by the fact that the family was still alive and they were sometimes on the set and that that made it just a more difficult situation. I mean, this is, you know, you could do an entire podcast on films based on real events and uh, why they're not documentaries and why yeah. sometimes we need to find some wiggle room in there. And and I think sometimes movies go too far. Sometimes they don't go far enough. Um, it's, it's just, it's a really weird kind of chemical equation when it comes to these types of, of movies. And this one really feels kind of smothered uh, a little bit in terms of just, you know, um, stick to the words on the page. Like, don't, yeah. don't kind of deviate from that. I, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I also feel like, and I don't know if you knew anything about fly fishing going into this film. Jessica. I did not, no. Uh, I know as much about fly fishing <laughs> now as I did when I pressed play on this movie. I, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is, it's beautiful. And you know, it won it won best cinematography for a reason. It I is think gorgeous. These, the film is stunningly beautiful. Beautiful to look at. Yeah. These, these sun-kissed river scenes and and the the way that they do the fly, like it it is beautiful. Um, I don't know what the fuck they're doing though. No, like the, that's the thing about just it. Just waving a pole back and forth. <laughs> and I was like, that's how you catch. I had no. I I feel like I know even less about fly fishing than yeah. I knew at the beginning of this film. It's, I mean, and this is just, I'm just going to say what I think is supposedly happening, which is I think they're trying to actually draw the fish out of the water with these, with the, um, the bait or the, the tackle or whatever they've got on the end of the line. Right. And I'm assuming that that's what's happening here. Um, because at the end, they say something about like the fish jumping out of the water or something to that effect. But like a perfect example, I think of what you and I are talking about is, uh, near the end of the film, uh, uh, Norman and Paul are fishing together. Their father is there watching them fish. Uh, and we're seeing Paul, you know, uh, be sort of this groundbreaking fisherman that he is in terms of, you know, whatever. And he looks over at sort of a, a, a quadrant of the river across from him. Mm -hmm. And the camera locks in on this spot of the river two maybe three times and in my head i'm like what am i looking at why is this important how is this and i still don't know like clearly it means something to fly fishermen i'm assuming but like to a fucking layman you're just like yeah okay there's 
there's some water. I bet what there's fish mean? in there. I don't know. I, yeah, it, it is. It does not do oh. enough. It needs a smidgen more exposition about how the fuck fly fishing works for <laughs> anyone who does not already. But, you know, yeah. from what I know about fishermen at, as a hobbyist fisherman as a breed, they don't want they're kind of like magicians. Like they don't <laughs> if you don't know, you don't deserve to know. And that movie kind of okay. makes that point where sure. it's like. Uh, that you, if you're a good fly fisherman, you're good at life. Okay. I mean, I doubt the fish would agree. Yeah. I'll say this, though. Um, in terms of the fish, uh, they did, um, apparently, there was something I read here about how they, yeah, so the trout used in the movie were pond-raised in Montana and were kept in specifically aerated and cooled uh, tank truck into their big moment in front of the cameras. No hooks were used, no blood was drawn, a line was tied to each film's lower jaw under the careful observance of the Montana Humane Society. That's great. I'm, I'm happy to hear that they did that. Um, yeah, but did and- they ever act again? I mean, that, that was the end of their <laughs> career. Touche. I will say, though, kind of surprised they did this in 92. Like, in 92, I'm surprised they weren't just, like, fucking yeah. like, hooking fish. Kill and every, like, yeah, bring thousands yeah, like, of fish in. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Um, uh, so, Brad Pitt beat um, someone out for the role of Paul McLean, someone we have discussed on, uh, on our uh, double feature together, which is River Phoenix. He oh. was uh, out for the role. Um, I don't know. I, I love River Phoenix, as we discussed on our episode of our of the Patreon. Um, they have a similar energy at mm-hmm. this time. I mean, obviously, River isn't with us anymore, but they were both sort of like up and coming, charismatic, good looking guys who kind of really kind of the screen liked them. Um, I wonder whether or not. I think Brad's the right choice when everything is said and done. I agree. But I also kind of would have liked to have seen what River would have done with it. I mean, and not yeah. just because his name's in the title. I, I would have liked to see what River did with, with any role. He was always yes. In, yes. interesting on screen. But I think the thing about Brad Pitt, that if this movie was what this movie was supposed to be about, which is a, a sibling rivalry, really, yeah. and a sibling relationship, I think Pitt is the better choice because there's something about Brad Pitt's beauty that I think intimidates men slightly. Like, sure. he's so pretty, I think he makes men a little bit nervous. And I, and I don't think River Phoenix quite had that. He, he was also very beautiful, but in a more accessible way. Like, And you need that. If you want a brother that is jealous of his beautiful, charismatic younger brother, you need that feeling of like, yeah, I kind of get it. I'd be slightly intimidated if this guy was my younger sure. brother too. And I think Pitt's better at fulfilling that. Yeah, I, I also think that um, Pitt is a little more timeless than River was. Maybe, like, I, yeah. I, a little bit. Like, I th- don't get me wrong. River's incredible at the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, obviously. Like, yeah. he, he kind of fit in any time period. But um, he's in Sneakers with Redford yeah. in 92. Um, and he's great in that movie. Yeah. Um there's a moment at the end of sneakers, which we talked about in our episode um, where at the end he takes off his baseball cap and his hair is just like this crazy, like mane of hair. And you're just like, this guy just doesn't fit in any boxes. And I think that I don't know that that might've been an asset in this movie, quite honestly, but it also might've broken in the wrong direction for this movie. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's hard. He was a subtle actor. So in this movie that really had nothing to, play 
I, I don't know. You kind of also need a greener actor who will go a little bigger with his choices. Because at least Brad Pitt is a little more interesting to watch on the screen in this movie. Like you, yes. you are interested when he's on screen. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not true for most of the rest of the cast, I would say. Uh, that's 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 a I would agree with that. That is an accurate assessment. <laughs> um, I so I want to talk. Let's talk Brad Pitt for a second here because um, this is one of his earlier leading roles. Yeah. Um, he does Thelma and Louise in '91, and that's sort of a moment when everyone's like, "Who's this guy?" It's it's his big break. Yeah. '92. Uh, we have we we did an episode on Cool World, uh, a uh, a very strange movie that. I never saw uh, it. Oh boy. Someday, Jessica, you should watch. You should watch. I would say like fifteen minutes of Cool World, okay, and okay. you'll and you'll Is that be the like, one that's partially animated or something? Correct. Yeah, okay. Yes. But yes. It was the. It was sort of the Ralph Bakshi, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Okay. Okay. That's intriguing. No for. Yeah. yeah. It's intriguing, uh, but but just very upsetting. And Brad is. <laughs> It's 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 Brad Pitt, Kim Basinger, and uh, and Gabriel Byrne are the three leads in that film. Um, and Brad being the greenest of them um, seems very over his skis. And okay. that's not his fault. He's just, anyway. Um, but in the same year, he does River and Swiss. So he's got both of these films. And uh, then 93, he's got California and True Romance. Uh, 94 is his big year where he's got Interview with the Vampire Legends of the Fall. Um, and then 95 is Seven and Twelve Monkeys. Right. So it's like... He, there, there's a real ascension happening for him in the in the early 90s and then he really gets sort of mired in kind of oscar Beatty bullshit like sleepers and the devil's own and seven years in tibet and yeah. meet joe black and he's really a kind of a nader after those four films and then he's got fight club in 99 he gets obviously back in bed with fincher um and it really isn't until Ocean's Eleven in 2001 that I think he really, to kind of your earlier point, fully understands what people want from Brad Pitt. Yeah. And then from that point on, he's kind of given us Brad Pitt. Yeah. With, 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 with a couple performances here and there that are a little bit outside the box. But for the most part, um, it does feel as though... And, and listen, I like Brad Pitt. I, I think he's a very watchable... I do too you know and there have always always been actors that we like more for their presence and what they look like and that doesn't mean they're bad actors it just means that what like what you said what we're looking for them is something very specific and it's weird when they try to go too far out of the box It, it feels false in a way we don't expect from you know like character actors because Mm -hmm. it's like we know who brad pitt is so Mm -hmm. it's it's bizarre if he's suddenly trying to be someone wildly different but it is sad in a way it feels uh it feels like at at that point a lot of artists stop developing and sure and it and it's the same so it's you know it's a double-edged sword it is what i like seeing him i love seeing him be you know the brad pitt that's in oceans 11 i love that that's a really charismatic funny character but as an artist, I wonder how fulfilling that is. I, I I agree with you. And I do think that, you know, he tries to push back from time to time. If it's a assassination of Jesse James or, you know, um, you know, even to some degree, like, yeah, Benjamin Button is like 
doing there's a that's a crazy movie yeah <laughs> and he's doing it's it, you know what i mean uh for good or bad i think he's trying to do interesting stuff and then i also think there are times when he weaponizes the brad pitt thing very smart like i think money i love moneyball um hmm. and i think i think that is that is definitely one of his best performances if not his best performance in terms of understanding it's just a full understanding of the persona mixed with this real person. I, I just, I think it's, I, I, I think he's, you know, and then they, you know, I don't know, Inglorious Bastards or, you know what I mean? Like he's, I don't know. He's done a lot of stuff. Like I kind of look at this filmography and I'm like, it's pretty impressive what he's, you know, the, the, the juice he's gotten out of what, if I look at a river runs through it. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, I, like... I mean, he's had a great career and I think he's probably somebody that really enjoys being on set or, and, and in, enjoys sure. doing the whole movie business thing. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, i you know, Redford was somewhat like this himself. Like you wanted Robert Redford to be on screen, yes. to be funny, sexy, intellectual, like you would never cast him in a role that wasn't that. So mm-hmm. I wonder if there was a camaraderie between the two of them. For sure. I mean, they do spy game together many years later, but yeah, yeah I mean, it is, it's my, one of my favorite Brad Pitt stories and forgive me if you've heard this before, but um, so burn after reading the, the Coen brothers mm-hmm. film that he's in um, he'd never been in a Coen brothers movie and he read the script and he said, <laughs> he said to them, I don't think I can act this dumb. And they said, don't worry, you'll do great. <laughs> Which I think was a way of saying, uh, you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah. Uh, but but I just I, I think that there's um to your point, a as time has progressed into Brad Pitt's career, I do feel as though there's a self-awareness that's happened, which I immediately give him points for because spoiler, most actors don't have self-awareness. That is true. Um, and I mean, I, I think that, listen, everyone in Hollywood is, is, is guilty of that in some form or another. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, it's not just actors, but I, I think that there's something interesting there. I think that the, the, um, the camaraderie or the connection between Redford and Pitt, I do think is an interesting one for sure. Yeah. And I wonder if you saw a little bit of a younger version of himself in Brad Pitt to some degree. Um, apparently William Hurt wanted to play the role of Paul McLean, which, Ooh, I can't. I can't. Really see. I can see him being Norman. I can't see him. That's somebody who definitely yeah. thinks he's a lot cooler than I. I think he is. <laughs> but yes, that's William I, Hurt I for you. Um, and then at one point, the film is considered as a vehicle for Lloyd Bridges and his two sons, Bo and Jeff. Well, that was my thing about the guy that played Norman. Is I was like, he's almost a bridge. He's almost Tim Robbins, and he's almost right. a Bridges brother. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. But I think that, like, I. I mean, listen. There's any number of reasons why that version didn't actually come to fruition but i do feel like and i don't know if it's because most audiences don't even know this stuff right like most audiences aren't even cognizant of the fact that like some brothers play brothers on or sisters on film whatever the case might be sure but i do think there's a there's a connection there whether you you know fabulous baker boys is one of my favorite movies it's a great movie they don't look anything like brothers yeah and yet they are brothers. Like you can tell that these two guys have known each other their entire lives. Um, and I think that energy brought into this film, I think would have been interesting. 
Yeah, it's interesting too. This the film starts out with Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a little little baby, and uh, there it, you know you spend twenty minutes with the kids as kids, and yep. actually I thought that was the best section of the movie. Both of those kids are so compelling; they feel like brothers. Yeah. That it's shot really beautifully and intimately between them, and then it's mm-hmm. like Redford forgot he did that, and there's never that sense of brotherliness between the two of them mm-hmm. again. It, it's an odd contrast. Absolutely. It is an odd contrast. And, you know, to, to harken back to what you said, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, that like the lack of stakes and the lack of sort of really feeling any sort of threat to their way of life is just crushing to the movie, right? Like it just, it takes all of the air out of, out of it. I, I just, I think about the, the riverboat, the riverboat waterfall sequence. Yeah early in the film which by the way really well shot oh, and really so well gorgeous done. yeah i was just like this is crazy i don't know like how did they do this yeah and then you know you have this like are they gonna live is everything gonna... and of course they live like of course they live but also just sort of like okay so that happened like a lot of this movie just feels like scenes where you're like and then that happened yeah well you know and, and films about mundanity can be interesting you know i think of something like lost in translation which is essentially a mundane film where not much happens but it it is a if you're gonna make a film mundane it is about it's got to be about the fact that people still have the full human experience even when their lives are somewhat ordinary and here it's just like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it's like i i can't tell if you feel anything about your own life Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It, it it feels very like you're kind of stuck at a at a family friend's house and they're kind of telling you a story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, okay, so some stuff happened. Yeah. Like I it's it's what's also interesting too is that I feel as though um you have this and we'll get to the ending when we get to the end, but I do kind of feel as though they sort of pull the rug out from underneath you a little bit. And I think they think that that's effective, but it, it doesn't do what they think it's doing because you don't lay the, you didn't lay the piping. For yeah. Any of it. So like, you know, if you look at Paul's character, the Brad Pitt character, who, as you said, has interesting things about him, mm-hmm. or at least things that, that, are filmic 
he's a reporter. He apparently talks to the president. Uh, he he does, you know, he reports on interesting things. Uh, he's a gambling junkie, apparently. He's, yeah. You know, he he plays poker. Um, he's in debt up to his eyeballs. He drinks. Uh, he clearly is a womanizer to some degree or another. But all of this stuff is dialed so far down that it barely registers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is the whole problem. None of it affects anything that's happening in the film. And you can't tell really what anyone's reaction to it is. Like, I mean, again, that should be the stuff that drives his brother crazy, that his parents still love Paul while he is constantly getting into these problems. And it's just, but it doesn't, it's, it's, that's just what he does. Like, <laughs> that's just what happens. There's but that I, whole, like, fascinating and completely unexplored scene where he brings a Native American woman as a date to correct. a bar where she's clearly not welcome. And like, and then it ends with her being unconscious, drunk on the floor of the jail and Norman just dragging her out like she's luggage. And then she's never mentioned again. And it's like, what the hell? was that what are we supposed to take from that uh, it's it's funny you bring that up because i was thinking about that scene as well because i i it and again i don't want to like make any judgments or assume things but i'm just i'm going to because on some level like what else you have you know, what, what got a critique yeah right um you can't help but feel like perhaps the real norman didn't want to disparage the memory of his brother and didn't want there to be, um, you know, an account of his brother that didn't seem to some degree or another flattering. Um, I think in the process of rounding off the edges, perhaps, they flattened the character to such a degree yeah. that it became, you know, just kind of like whatever. It may also just have been that as a writer, yeah, both the screenwriter and the novelist, didn't have they had puzzle pieces and not a real idea of how to construct a puzzle you know he had like well this was an interesting time with my brother and this was mm -hmm. a weird thing he did but didn't know how to construct that into a narrative with a theme under it totally. and this and the script did not do that either and that's really where it i mean if i had to critique this script at my day job I would throw myself out a window. This, <laughs> like, and I know it's Academy nominated, so who knows what the hell I know? But like, it well, it would it would be one of those scripts that just drives me crazy because it's like you're making me read this, and I don't think you can tell me why I should be reading this, and you wrote it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I I mean, I'm just I'm I'm pulling up the other nominees just because it's worth uh, us talking about for a quick sure. second here. Uh, we have Howard's End, okay. Enchanted April, Great movie. Player, A River Runs Through It, and A Scent, a scent of a Woman. Um, what one? I mean, uh, Howard's End. Okay. Um, which is reasonable. But man, uh, was that a languid white people year at the Oscars? My God, that's, I mean, that's a listen, bunch of movies to of people with no one with problems. Yeah, I mean it's it's crazy that uh, that Malcolm X wasn't nominated. No, for of course not. For instance, <laughs> um, so you know, uh, yeah, it, it is it is one of those years where I kind of look at these films and I'm like, you know, I just recently uh, went to see the player again. Uh, it played at uh, at the Arrow here, and um, I like the player. We're going to do a whole episode on the player, obviously, at some point. Um, I have my issues with it. 
I don't think that it's a perfect movie by any means, but I think there's a lot of really, really good shit in mm-hmm. there. Um, have not read the book, so I can't speak to how well it was adapted or not. Uh, Scent of a Woman seems like it was loosely based on a novel, of, uh, which I've never read, an Italian novel by... Or, or sorry, a film, it seems. I'm just trying to look at what it was adapted. It was adapted from a novel and a film. I don't know. I don't know how much Bo Goldman read or saw these films, but um, I have my issues with the screenplay for Scent of a Woman as well. It's literally called Scent of a Woman. Yeah, there's that. It's a whole thing. Um, you know, I, I think that there are lots of films in 92 that I would have put in this category before these were the films that were, were nominated. Um, and I'm a little surprised that A River Runs Through It gets in there. Well, I don't know. It feels like the early 90s. And, you know, I was 10. So I, I, I don't have a super strong sense of what the film world was like sure. at the time. But, like, it seems mm-hmm. like that was the era where we were at the height of these very highbrow period adaptations. You know, that feels like that was the Merchant Ivory height. You're right. What we were really looking at were these very intellectualized, beautiful films about sure. white people having minor problems. So this seems like kind of the peak. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And and I, I think that we, you know, as the 90s progress into more sort of, um, try, like, as we veer away from adult movies, and I don't yeah. say that to say, like, I just mean movies aimed at adults. And and as we start to segue more towards the four quadranty stuff that seems to sort of, you know, obviously becomes everything, I think that stuff gets pushed a little bit more to the side. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you start but... getting the younger filmmakers that were influenced by 70s filmmaking rather than 50s and 60s filmmaking, and things just start to get a little more unhinged, I think. And more interesting. Yeah, in a good uh, way, I mean, in a, in a yeah, positive no, way. 100%. I, I think that, you know, just looking at um, at the other sort of uh, nominees of this year in terms of just the you know original screenplay, for instance, um, we have The Crying Game, uh husbands and wives um wow. lorenzo's oil passion fish and unforgiven um and uh the crying game wins yeah which is interesting yeah uh, we we recorded a we did a, a crying game episode which um it's a great episode and i think a fascinating kind of unpacking of a movie that i think is sort of unfairly put in a box it's a hard on... one to look back on. Like it's 100%. so of its time, but yes. we it's it's hard to remember that it was still a a, a big kind of step at the time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things we talk about in the episode is sort of you know, the, the the choices that Neil Jordan made and why he wanted to sort of do this depiction and how you know, uh, progressive and quite frankly, bold it was to do at the time. Yeah. It was weaponized by none other than Harvey Weinstein to turn it into this kind of, you know, tongue wagging, crazy twist, yeah. even though it happens 45 minutes from the end of the film. So it's not even a twist. Really. Right. It's about a man grappling with love and, and, and attraction and all these sort of things. But, um, and then, you know, on top of that, a few years later, you have the, you know, the, the horrible, um, Ace Ventura nonsense. So like yeah. it becomes this really gross thing that the movie doesn't really intend to be. The movie's weird in its own right. Like and people it, should listen yeah. to our episode. But but I all just I say that just this is a weird year for screenplays, period. Right. Yes. Like you look at these 10 nominees and you're just like, I would argue the Passion Fish is a better screenplay than the crying game. But 
as we all know, the Academy Awards tend to sort of screenplay tends to be kind of a here's a screenplay Oscar for a movie that we know we can't give anything else to. Yes, this is true. <laughs> so we are the consolation prize of Hollywood. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there is kind of that sometimes. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a weird it's a weird year. Um, it, it it's yeah I very strange well um yeah nationally we were in kind of an identity you know the cold war had ended we didn't really know what the hell we were doing like we were trying to reformulate our identity i'm not surprised it feels like no for sure a weird period of like i don't what are we who are we right now well i mean that that's the thing that i think emily and i have sort of been grappling with with this mini series or with this series or what have you uh is and it's it's one of the reasons that I wanted to pick this year, which is you you still have the hangover of the eighties, yeah, and you still have these you know you have a lot of a lot of erotic movies, and Basic Instinct is making four hundred million dollars yeah. in the box office, like that's still very real. And then the next year you've got Jurassic Park, and that you know the sort of what that precludes to to where sort of the rest of the decade goes in a lot of ways. Um, but you're absolutely right, you know you've got. Clinton's about to win in November of 92. Um, So, you know, Clinton, for lack of a better way of putting it, is the next eight years of the 90s. Yeah. And and everything that comes with that for good and for bad. Um, But yeah, it's it is it is a I think you're right when you say that, like, this is the kind of last gasp at a thing before page is turning yeah i think it's really true yeah and and i think the jurassic park thing is really astute because it's like we became the special effects became our identity kind of from that point forward and i think also toy story was a big alteration in what we were aiming at um and and yeah but at this point it was still i just think we were a little confused we didn't know what we wanted to be i i you know you pinpointing technology, I think, is interesting too, because watching this film, which is so tactile, which is so in camera, right? This is it is it is yeah. the most kind of you know you uh, a, a, a period piece. You feel really you know in it. Um, we talked obviously about Howard's End on a previous episode as well, which is a big movie in '92. Like just you had sort of period pieces, and this was a thing where adults went to the movies and they learned about history yeah. in some form or another. And then when technology comes into play. And anything, I put that in quotation marks, but basically anything becomes possible to render on a screen. From an imagination perspective, that's a game changer, right? Like it's unbridled imagination, which is exciting to very imaginative filmmakers. Um, but But to the ones that are very sort of terrestrial and very grounded and want to tell stories about character, um they get kind of left in the dust and and that's kind of where we are yeah and heartbreakingly you know the thing about this film is that like this is the kind of movie i wish we still had i wish we had 12 million dollar movies that made 60 million dollars i i wish there were adult dramas desperately i feel like we have lost so much with the passing of films like this and, and it's damn near impossible to get them made you know it's just tough um so you know it's not it's not a great thing that there aren't movies like this, even though this is a fairly boring example of the the genre. But I will say though, I I don't want to be too mean to this movie. I do think probably what Redford latched onto and certainly what I latched onto, you know, watching this a couple of days after Matt Perry died is this idea of that. Like there are some people that like 
you can't fix them. You can't necessarily help them. All you can do is love them. And like that, that's what you can do. You can love them. And like, that is an astonishing message and, and a beautiful message to come out of this film. And I, I wish it worked a little better in the movie, but like, that's, that is something that's universal and resonant and, and gorgeous in this movie. I, I, absolutely agree with you i i mean i don't mean to suggest that this film doesn't have the best of intentions i think that it yeah. does um i think that uh it, it's it just gets kind of lost along the way um but i agree with you i i, I think that um i wish that what you just said uh was like underlined more in this movie i i think that this movie lacks kind of the courage of its convictions yeah and 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 doesn't and again this isn't necessarily something that redford as a director is particularly adept at but you know we talked a little bit about quiz show up top but like i think the reason i like quiz show as much as i do is because i feel as though it's a really good script you know paul atanasio did the script Mm -hmm. and it just feels very sharp it's very sort of clear as to like what it's saying. You have characters say things like I, I think that, you know, one of the things about ordinary people is about sort of how people don't speak their emotions and how yeah. people don't talk. Right. It's, it's about sort of these, you know, bound up, you know, white people that just <laughs> rich white people that just don't say how they feel. Right. And and the consequences of those actions. And in some ways, this movie is kind of that again. Right. Which is. You're not actually saying how you feel. You're not actually expressing yourself. And there are consequences for those actions, even though, like, isn't it pretty to fly fish? It's kind of like. Yeah, it's interesting. Redford, as a. It is it is interesting his perspective on the white experience as a people sure. because you haven't seen the Lago Greenfield War but I, I highly in, encourage you to because that is told that's the story of um it's I think it's based on a true story and it was also based on a book but a a white land developer is coming mm-hmm. into a village um, of mostly native people and and Mexican people like Mexican American Mesoamerican people sure. and trying to um, take their water rights. And so much of that movie is just these people in this village being like these fucking white people. Like, and, you know, Redford really had this idea of like how stupid we are, how repressive our culture is and 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 how bad it is for us and how it makes us inhuman in, in how we treat other people. Uh, he had that concept in his head. Yeah. And it, boy, but here it's like he fell into it. Here, here he just forgot yeah. that from the outside, these these guys' story is not interesting. It's not deep. It's not impressive. But it, it doesn't have any stakes. They're just brothers, kind of having a life. Yeah, it's you know, I I think about um the artistic component of this film, and by that I mean Paul and this sort of the way he breaks free of his father's instruction when it sort of creates his own rhythm of fly fishing Mm -hmm. Um, and how I think that as an artist, I do think that probably Redford saw kind of this fly fishing as a metaphor in some way or another for, you know, artistic expression. I I think that, you know, there's that line that Norman says, where he says, I realized while I was away, my brother had become an artist um, I, I think that this is all really lovely. Now, 
it's about fly fishing there, people. So it is very hard to really give, you know what I mean? To really give that much gravity to this. Um, but like these brothers don't even hug. No. These brothers like shake hands very firmly. You're just like, how much can I care about two people that can't even like find a way to hug each other? It's just tough. Well, and that again, like the the I think the thing with shaving down the edges of the father too much is that like when he tells Paul at the end, like you've become a fine fisherman after seeing him use this technique that only he uses, sure. like that could be really impactful if we had seen him being judgmental of his son at any point or Paul struggling against the fact that he knows he's failing his father's expectations. But he doesn't. They love that he's a newspaper man. They want to hear all his stories. They want to spend time with him. Like he has nothing to struggle against. There is no reason he's this messed up. None. No one struggles. I mean, Norman struggles to get the attention of Jesse, I guess, to some degree. Sure, but she's not a person. So who, like, no, yeah. No. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's really tough. We don't even see them kiss. Nope. And she doesn't show up till an hour into the movie almost. There's and disappears no, also. Yeah, there's quickly. no story for the first hour of this film. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's rough. It's it, it, <laughs> because like there is, you do see as you're watching it, because like there's a lot of love on the screen. Yes. Right. I mean, I love all the, the, the sepia tone tin type photographs to kind of punctuate the passing of time. All that stuff was, I actually thought was really well rendered in yeah. terms of like putting the characters inside those time periods. Um, it's yeah. It, the movie just needs like a, a kick in the ass is really ultimately what it needs. Um, and it's just really kind of, very content to just plod along and be a thing but listen 66 million dollars and that's that's like a oscar nominations I, yeah i mean, I mean what, yeah, what like, the hell do we know we don't have those things <laughs> um there are moments though and i know we've kind of said white a lot of times but i do think it's worth kind of unpacking for a quick second here that this movie is sort of the the, the moment that really hit me kind of was there's this picnic at one point <laughs> yeah where i'm just like this is some serious white <laughs> shit. They're in the middle of Montana, like on a riverbank, and there's like there's like a little band and flappers, and it's yeah. just like it it's amazing because I think in the in the hands of a more aware filmmaker, if you're gonna make this now, there would be an awareness of how imposing and weird this culture, this yeah. you know, excised East Coast culture being imposed on this beautiful natural landscape, Perfect. how strange and alien that feels. But here it's just mm -hmm. presented. That's just what <laughs> they do. It it really is, you know, I was watching it thinking to myself, you know, I understand that back in 92 and in the years that preceded it, that there was sort of there was no one really keeping Hollywood's feet to the fire of of really trying to show the full experience oh of the cert yeah certainly of nobody who was existed. getting through yeah right uh and I, some would argue still not nearly yes. and we are not nearly far enough to you know along but at least now there's a real kind of there's a pressure there's a there's a desire to be able to uh show the breadth of the of the human experience in every story that you tell um or at least to attempt it uh there's no attempt here, and I think that 
not only was that okay, I imagine it was plotted. And that's that's a problem. I think he was doing about the most that anybody did at the time because there is the scene where he brings the Native American woman to the bar. And then there's also a scene where the mother is on the phone talking about how she wants to undertake this charity initiative with the reservation. Yeah. And, you know, again, like in the hands of a, of a more fully aware filmmaker, you ask, like, should these fucking white people be even be here? It, who did they kick out of this land? Why is there a reservation there? Why did they, you know, who did they take this from? And those people are completely invisible in the film and it's not discussed. But I, I can't tell. Was Redford trying to imply that he understood some of that imposition on the world that these people are putting there? Because otherwise, why is that stuff in there at all? Or was he just thinking that of a normal fact of life that sometimes nice Christian ladies did outreach to reservations, you know? I mean, for, for all we know, it's a vestige of some of a storyline that might have been cut from the film. That's true. I mean, I mean there's, it's certainly possible. Um, you know, Redford does seem like a very aware person of very of much. Now, yeah. Right? And, and even then. So it, it does seem strange on some level for especially considering where this film takes place and and you know the various sort of regions of this country that were um well this entire country was taken from the native americans but you understand my point exactly different regions where it's it's more prominent um and there's a whole story there right like i want to see that movie i think that that movie is one that obviously should be told but um yeah, it is interesting. I, I it's it's hard. Your depiction of the of the scene when he takes the Native American uh, woman to the bar is just sort of like you're just like, yeah. Wh- how, how so? It starts from a place of, you know, a white person patting himself on the back for for getting his you know his girl to come into this bar. Or yeah, whatever. this kind of white white savior kind of moment that exists, which isn't in in its own way kind of gross, but much more endemic of. 1992 sure. to her being passed out on the floor of a, of a jail cell and being dragged out like luggage you're just sort of like i don't w- what are we even saying here like what what is what's the message right because certainly from a 2023 perspective that scene feels tremendously exploitive like they're the white guys are in no danger she is in an incredible amount of danger and the film doesn't acknowledge it at uh, all and then it treats her like an op, literally like a like an an inconvenient object, and it's just yeah. like Robert, what the hell are you saying? I the the only bit of that whole sort of sequence or or swath of the film that I that I found endearing to some degree was Jessie talking about her hair and being because she's like, should I? She's like, you have the most beautiful hair, and she talks about like cutting it into a bob or whatever. What I appreciated about that was a, it felt very human. It made me like Jesse. It made me like her for trying to sort of, you know, not just pull this girl into the conversation, but also, you know, it it, it made the scene very human to me, which I appreciated. Yeah. But it's it's a blip, and then on to other things. It's just uh, it's very strange. I I mean, the female characters in this film leave me wanting. I <laughs> um, that's one way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> you've got Jesse. You've got this Native American character who, unfortunately, I don't uh, know if, if I'm sure her name was said. Mabel, I think her name is Mabel. Mabel, you're right. That Her name is Mabel. And then we have Rawhide. Uh, yeah. So Rawhide is this prostitute she seems, character. Yeah, she seems like she is out of an entirely different movie. One that 
might be more interesting than might the one we be. were watching. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there is a sort of this almost Calamity Jane from uh, Deadwood kind of vibe that she's got. Not that Calamity Jane is a prostitute, but like... <laughs> There's this kind of, they meet her at a bar. We hear this narration again, explaining who she is. Um, and then we see her again when she shows up with Neil fishing after, you know, they've tied on a lot of drinks and what have you. Um, not really sure what to tell you about Rawhide, other than the fact that she just, she she <laughs> she's kind of shoehorned into this movie. It's just a lot of things that are there. I... Yeah, There's, it it has it it is just so interesting because watching this film, it looks like you're you are watching a relic from this very recent and not totally gone time where the only perspective that mattered was white men's, and everything else was just an accessory, an obstacle, or a prize. And it is it's depressing as hell that that was, you know, that was in our lifetimes. That was what we were, that was the kind of film we were exposed to growing up as great art. And like that, Oh, it's tough. Like I respect Redford as a filmmaker and I don't think he's necessarily a misogynist or anything like that, but you see the unconscious misogyny that goes into scripts like this. And it's just like, yeah, I don't know what to say, man. Yeah, and it's they, they, it does seem like there's kind of these moments where they're trying to infuse Jesse with a little bit of sort of anti-establishmentarianism, a little bit of like bucking back, um, or, or that she's a spark plug at the very least. Like I, you know, you've got this this one scene that that uh, where she's driving them home, yeah, and decides to drive on the on the train tracks as a shortcut. And they drive through a tunnel and they, there's no lights and there's this kind of like tension as to will the train, you know, crash into them. And then they're driving over the tracks and, and he's looking down at sort of the, the river below. And, and there's like a totally different way to direct that scene to give it kind of the juice that I think he thinks he's bringing to this moment, this kind of this lull in the movie, but the score is bizarre yeah the score is like that i don't even know how to describe it it's 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 like it's it's playful and cute it's jaunty as to yeah jaunty yeah where it doesn't feel like it has any real uh that there's any real as we said stakes or doom or or anything you know uh and it's shot in such a way that's not very dynamic yeah i'm just like i don't know why you're doing well, and what is the consequence of that scene? And there should be consequence. That's something that she's doing that Paul would absolutely find a hoot. Why does he? Why is Norman okay with this in his girlfriend, but not in his brother? That's an interesting question that somebody should... It's just like a connect the dots image with none yep. of the dots connected. Yeah. And, and you're watching it. And as I was watching it, I'm just like, it's expensive to make a sequence. Yes, very. I wonder if they didn't have enough money to pull that sequence off. And that's why it looked so flat. That's fair. But yeah, the score Um, is unforgivable in that. that The score is. Yeah. Um, The Oscar winning score, right? uh, Nominated. Oscar just nominated. Um, So I want to talk about. I guess what you would argue is not the climax of the movie necessarily, but an emotional kind of climax, if you will, which is um, there's this moment where 
Norman goes to Paul and tells him that he's going to propose to Jesse and Paul wants his luck to rub off on on him so he kind of drags him to this speakeasy where there's poker being played and um it's so interesting because in the wikipedia synopses it says paul tries to get in on a poker game in the back room but the dealer will not let him play because he already owes so much money that's not actually like delineated no. in the scene no like it's it's crazy to me that 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 there are so many like just necessary details of exposition that are just not in this. I was so checked out of the movie by that point, but yes, it is not, it is not, I, I don't know what's happening in that scene. I really don't. So I, if it was not for the Wikipedia page, I would not have known that that was supposed to be my takeaway from that scene. Yeah. But that being said, Paul tells Norman that he isn't leaving since he feels lucky. He's going to convince them to let him play, blah, blah, blah. So there's this scene outside this establishment where Brad Pitt's just smiling and acting cute and saying, I'm going to get it. It's going to be fine. I'm going to get in there, whatever. And I, I don't want to blame Brad for this because I really agree with you that like the writing and the direction is the, the, the people to blame here. Yeah. But the lack of depth and understanding in Pitt's, performance and in this character just leaves him so unmoored that these seismic scenes feel completely devoid like they're just so totally flat well and immediately following this like if he turned up dead sorry spoilers the next morning i get it thank you yes but he doesn't (laughs) he's fine he dies later for mysterious reasons right so like you have this scene where again we're supposed to be worried for paul's well-being yes right in theory if this information was told to us that he was in (laughs) debt up to his eyeballs and that he was fucked over yeah you know whatever then the tension that i think he redford thinks we're feeling the next morning when norman is relieved to have paul show up at the breakfast table but like we don't what we don't feel any of that because we don't know that there's actually anything at stake here yeah so then they go yeah yeah the threat is never delineated i don't know who's mad at paul or why or if it's a real threat or anything Mm -hmm. and i mean i guess there is a kind of interesting idea in in this that ebert got into in his review which is this idea that like we don't know what moments in our life are consequential yeah and like, so in that realm, it sort of makes sense that like he turned up fine after this thing that Norman was worried was dangerous. But then a few weeks later or months later, we have no idea. But sometime later, he got killed because like it might not happen tonight, but it could happen sometime, I guess. But that's not dramatic. And also, we, you and I have to work for that. Yes. Right? Like you and I have to sit here and like, like pulling teeth, extrapolate that from a film that's a studio fucking Oscar movie. Like this yeah. should be, we should be, I hate to say this, but like we should be spoon fed this information. This is information that in order for this film to really connect has to have these signposts. It is this incredible. Is, again, screenwriting 101. Right. It is incredible to look back at this and be like, man, they just let people just make movies. <laughs> no lead. No. Like I know we all think studios mm. are way too overbearing now and they, they definitely have overcorrected, but like, they just used to let what they just used to hand $12 million out willy nilly. Crazy. 
so then they go fishing as you know we mentioned he catches a big fish and uh it's a, it's a big win and his dad tells him he's a good fisherman and there's all this whatever and it's a good sequence i do think that ultimately it kind of sums up the whole movie in terms of like sure. what the movie's trying to say and and it's very well executed and it is a very big fish. I mean, you have to, it's an impressive fish. I, they they definitely chose the right size of they fish. They chose the right fish. Um, I hope that fish works. That may be the but... best setup thing in the movie. Cause we've seen other fish <laughs> and they've all been smaller. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. Jessica's speaking the truth guys. We did see fish and they were smaller. Yes. Um, and then <laughs> And then basically we cut to um, Norman. It's it's a wide shot of the police station from very far away. Yes. And we see Norman walk out. We have VO that he was called to the police station uh, and that he was informed that Paul was beaten to death. He then informs his parents of this. Now, I, I, I say this in terms of to give our audience the aesthetics because it could not be more emotionally devoid. Yes. It could not be less powerful. Now, this could all be intentional, by the way. I mean, I don't mean to suggest that Robert Redford doesn't have intent. I think he does. But the fact that I don't get to see the moment that his brother is told this, get to see his face, get to see how this actually resonates on his, on his face. We get it broken to the parents. The scene is completely bloodless it feels like there's no they they seem surprised they seem sad but also so buttoned up with their emotions um the mom just goes upstairs like just doesn't even like want to engage in this and tom scared says is there any other information you can tell me and he says that all the bones were broken in his right hand I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from that. I, I, I mean, I was guessing that meant that it was a fight, that he was punching someone. But we don't, we don't. It was interesting. When I was watching that scene, I was comparing it in my head. I recently watched Brokeback Mountain. And the scene where Heath Ledger's character finds out that Jake Gyllenhaal is dead is also told in a kind of mechanical way by his wife. And Ledger doesn't do a big emotional reaction because his whole character in that that film is completely stone-faced and incredibly bottled up and it is such an effective scene it is so emotional without big you know you didn't have to take this scene into melodrama sure but it was like redford didn't trust the actor to be able to pull this off because i mean that certainly himself to be able to direct it possibly because it's just completely avoided well the brokeback comparison is a really interesting one because i think that i mean two things come to mind the first is we get a pop flash yeah. of uh, Jack Twist getting beaten up. Yeah. Right? So there's a little bit of context to know that, that um, oh my God, why am I drawing a blank on Heath Ledger's character's name? Ennis. Um, Ennis either assumes that he's being lied to in terms of how Jack actually died, or at least we as an audience are being privy to what really happened. Yeah. Or it's Ennis imagining what happened. Beside the point, we are seeing some sort of a depiction of what transpired. And then obviously it's him hugging the shirt at yeah. the end and, and, you know, seeing that release, that catharsis to some degree. 
we don't get any of that in this, right? No. Like we don't get we don't get a we don't get a pop flash to a fight. We don't get you know some you know uh, bookie beating him up and saying you owe us money. Like no. nothing like that. And we don't get the catharsis. Yeah, we don't even <laughs> see the actor's face. Like it feels yeah. like from that moment, the entire rest of the movie is shot in profile. Like we we get nothing, and so it's, it's meaningless. Pretty crazy. Yeah. And again, like, on some level, just for argument's sake, since you and I are sitting here having this conversation, if this is Redford's intent, it's bold. <laughs> right? What? What is the, in- like, what? I can't figure out what the intent is. It could be his intent, yeah. but I have no idea what, what he was intending, if that's the case. Yeah, it's, you know, what's interesting is that I think that... um it's it's sort of like the film is stuck in between two um poles if you will mm-hmm. you have sort of this um kind of impressionistic almost terence malicky version of this movie yeah or you have the straight up oscar bait handholdy cider house rulesy yeah whatever it is and this movie is stuck in between these two things, and it's kind of neither, forgive me, neither fish nor fowl. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, like, the Terrence Malick version of this, I could probably get on board with, where it's a tone poem, and it's more about sort of, like, the lyricism of yeah. fly fishing and God, and <clears throat> and it's all VO, or it's mostly VO, or whatever, <laughs> like, like right? Which is, which is Terrence's thing, and God bless him for it. But it feels like there's there's a lack of commitment to to that, and what we're left with is sort of this like, how what am I supposed to feel? Yeah, no, I definitely I think you nailed it when you said like this is listening to somebody at a friend's house telling you a story because like the effect of all of those scenes after his death is just like well sometimes things happen and you're like great that's not that's not anything. Whew. Well, you know what, Jessica. We we went we 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 went down the river together, uh, and it, it was. I mean, I I thank you so much for taking the time not to talk with me about it, not just to talk with me about it, but to actually sit down and watch this movie, um, a movie that I don't think you've ever texted me in all caps before, but I appreciated it. <laughs> I'm sorry. If, no, I loved it. I was going to be forced like, through a two hour epic on fly fishing. I'm no, gonna... as you should. Uh, just for for our listeners, uh. You texted me. I just want to read it because it was great. Um, why am I? There it is. Uh, oh my god! The whole climax is he catches a big fish in all like in all caps with uh, with two uh, question marks. Yeah, I mean, listen. No one should watch a river runs through it. I, I mean, unless you really want to. If you're into fishing, um, maybe it maybe it works better. Sure. And I also think, you know, one last, there's two, one, two, one, two quick things I want to say. The first is you mentioned that you liked Brad in this movie. Yes. And I still think Brad hasn't really come into his own as an actor yet. And I think that he's not being given enough by Redford. Yeah, I think that's true. So what you're left with is a guy who still feels a little bit just uncomfortable like a little stilted a little uncomfortable in his skin delivering lines in a way that i just sort of that doesn't feel completely natural to me um it is an interesting performance to watch to see where he's yeah i i think it it only works for me in the context of brad pitt's whole 
career. Probably if I saw this movie in 92 and I wasn't 10 years old, like I would, I would agree with you, but like the wobbliness of his performance makes him feel more real and more vulnerable as an actor to me. And I, I, I find that more intriguing than I find garden variety, Brad Pitt. That's totally fair. Uh, I think that, I think that's, that is the right way to look at it. I think that he, and I think it's, you know, the next performance, him him choosing California next, mm-hmm. where he plays this kind of, you know, serial killing kind of, you know, white trashy character. It's clear that he wants to get out from underneath this, but then he goes and does Legends of the Fall, which is just him being, you know, this beautiful, you know, long haired cowboy. Yeah. Um, all that being said, the only other person that I wanted to mention very briefly I think she's got five lines, is Brenda Blethyn, who does play the mother in this movie. Uh, Brenda Blethyn, who is a great actor, who would go on to get an Academy Award nomination for Secrets and Lies a few years later, um, is given truly nothing to do with this. Absolutely nothing. She could be a cardboard cutout, and it sucks, because I love her. She is such a vulnerable and and sort of... um, She has a slightly unsettling quality to her that I love. Uh, And it's just, here she's just puritanical mom. Yeah no personality nothing it sucks i mean truly not sure she says anything for an hour yeah. of this movie. the things that female actors had to put up with in this era is just a travesty yeah it sucks uh very bad don't do it um so <laughs> to rate this film um i know uh i came into this podcast at a 68 i'm going down um I'm going to go down to like a 59. I don't think that this movie is like terrible. I don't think this movie is unwatchable. I found it, as we just discussed for the past 90 minutes, very boring. And, and, you know, maybe watch it with your dad or your grandfather. It seems like something they'd probably really like. They'd like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. This this brings me all the way back to our very first movie together, which was Anna and the King, in terms of like, <laughs> it commits the same two sins of a, a lack of director, directorial clarity, and it's boring. Um, but also like Anna and the King, it's gorgeously shot. I mean, it's yeah. truly, truly beautiful on the yeah. screen. I do like Brad Pitt in it. I would have to go somewhere around... I I will be generous and give it like a 65 because I believe in the intellectual sure. aims of it. And I believe in the thematics of it and the look of it, but man, sure. man, did they drop the ball on kind of the, the things that make a movie, a movie. Absolutely. It's so funny. You bring up Anna and the King because if you put a gun to my head, I don't know which one I would recommend more. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they, they both, really suffer from sort of like cataclysmic decisions Mm -hmm. right like that that really sort of render the film completely unengaging yeah and yet at the same time i can't sit here and say like don't watch a movie with jodie foster and chow yun fat or exactly brad pitt um and even from a subject matter perspective right like i think that anna and the king has more to work with sure but is also probably more offensive. Yes. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't know, man. It's really kind of, uh, it's a real Sophie's choice here. I don't know. I think they're both, but it is interesting that you bring it up because I do think they both kind of have similar foundational problems. Well, there was one review that called this tasteful to a fault. And I think that's exactly <laughs> the movie's problem. That's a perfect review. Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> 
Um, well, Jessica, where can people uh, find you? I know you're still, I'm still on the terrible site. that is I'm, a, I'm avoiding Twitter as much as possible. I, 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 my, my father actually called me in a panic this week because I hadn't posted in four days. And he was like, are you alive? Have you died? Right, right, right. Um, and you're like, no, I'm on Blue Sky He now. lives, yeah, he lives five blocks away from me. He could have come over and checked. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm on Blue Sky at Baddest Mamma Jamma. And uh, okay. the only thing I have to push right now is a campaign called Give Jessica a Writing Job. <laughs> I'm bored Give of being a writing out, job, of, guys. out of work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Um, give writers work, guys. That'd be great. Please. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Twitter's a terrible place. Um, I've found myself uh, off it a lot more than I was, especially uh, it will surprise nobody that um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, doesn't bode well for social media when it comes to a nuanced take. It is not bringing out our best, for sure. It's a 5,000-year-old conflict that people have whittled down to uh, tweets. And Um, memes. So, yeah, and memes. Uh, It's not great. Um, So I've I've really kind of stayed away from them. But you are still a wonderful presence on social media. You're also on Instagram, are you not? Yes, I I, I am. I I just post pictures of baked goods on there. So if you're into that. By the way, I mean, guys. Yeah. Baked goods. Lots of baked goods. Um, but they should follow you and they should watch your film. Can people still watch? Yes, film? you can watch where, my film, film, What Lies West. It's on Amazon. It's on YouTube. I, it's, I think it's on Apple Plus. It's on a few places. Definitely watch yeah. it. Please watch it. It's a good film. Well, there you go. Thank you so much, Jessica. You're <laughs> the best. Thank you. Truly, Phil. truly, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, you'll be back. I will be else. back. I hope It'll I will be, be exciting. Back. Yeah. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.